Thank you for coming back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. I'm Jeff with Team Rhino Outdoors. And if you want to check out the company I'm in charge of, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And the co-hosts tonight are Brad and Carrie Hoppy with Muskie Mayhem Tackle. Although I don't think Carrie's along with us right now. She will be shortly from when we talk to our guest tonight. And if you want to check out more about Muskie Mayhem Tackle, you can visit their website, and that would be MuskieMayhemTackle.com. We're going to have a guest today, and that would be Ty Sennett. Ty's done a bunch of fishing in tournaments. He guides primarily on the Chippewa Flowage in northern Wisconsin, so we're going to catch a couple different topics there. I think that's it. I guess Ty's got some big shoes to fill, huh, huh Brad, coming in after Laz last week? Yeah, that's for sure. But, you know, the neat thing about Ty is he's been in the industry a long time. He's got tons of knowledge. He'll bring a lot to the table. Absolutely. I mean, he's been a guide, a tournament angler, owned a bait company, so definitely a few different angles that we can hit on that one. For sure. You know, he's kind of a unique uh, in a sense with the guiding, you know, you look at Ty, he's over there on the Chippewa flowage. He pretty much sticks it out just on that body of water, but you know, that's a destination. That whole Hayward area is a destination for muskies, lots of history there. And I would say Ty's part of that history. I would definitely agree. You think Chippewa flowage, you think Ty Senate these days, there's a few other guys I think of too, but you know, for the purpose of this podcast, this is this is Ty's podcast. It's all about him today. So we'll talk with right. him. Uh, let's see here. In muskie-related news, we finally put that aluminum boat, how to install your transducer video, up on our Backlash Podcast YouTube channel. So if you want, you can go check that out. As far as Team Rhino Outdoors, business as usual, I'd say. Still shipping daily, as long as Speedy and... USPS still come out to pick up our stuff and UPS comes out to pick up stuff. We're still good to go there. Uh, we're still getting shipments in, you know, I would say daily to weekly. So that's good. Brad, you got anything new and, uh, new going on? Any news with musky mayhem? Oh, we're kind of in the same boat, Jeff. I mean, we're, we're doing the same. We're shipping. And as long as they continue to pick up, we'll continue to ship. I will say that you know, it seems like some of the stores are starting to kind of get back into rhythm. We're seeing a bunch more orders again. So hopefully, you know, everybody's sitting at home and doing whatever they're doing. They're still getting ready for the musky season. And we totally, I mean, truly, truly appreciate all the business that we've been seeing. So it's all been pretty solid. We're just digging through this, you know, like everybody else. Speaking of musky season, let's touch on it quick. So this weekend, a couple days from the time that this podcast comes out, you may listen to it before or after this weekend, and then you would have already potentially gone fishing. But muskie season opens in Wisconsin, south of Highway 10, this weekend. So finally, the um, we can take the training wheels off, and we can get out, and we can actually talk about fishing, and we can see what's going on as far as the latest patterns on the water and who's catching what. And it's an exciting time to, you know, it's just like a, I guess I say the renew the passion is is how this goes. I always used to use the southern season as like the opener, like it was like preseason spring training kind of a deal to get to get out before I went to northern Wisconsin and started fishing that opener for the southern half. If when I got out, I would typically just throw new baits and play around with the different toys I gather over the winter. So hopefully you guys all have some toys to play with and you get out this uh, this coming weekend. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people chomping to be on the water, especially for the muskie. You know, I mean, guys are out there doing some walleye fishing and, and so on and so forth. But, you know, over here in my neck of the woods, uh, we've lost pretty much most of our ice on all the bodies of water now. I know just to the north of me, there's still a little bit of ice, but it sounds like it's going to be gone here. And it's raining today, so hopefully that'll melt off the rest of it across the state. But, uh Water temps are coming up quickly from what I've heard. I haven't been on the water myself. It's spring, and it's a little bit earlier. If you remember last year, we uh, definitely are about two to three, good three weeks earlier than what we were last year as far as water temps, the way it sounds. So that's a positive. It is. We could use that. We could maybe use a normal a normal spring, although this spring's still been kind of abnormal. I mean, we're going from kind of bouncing around up and down as far as temperatures go it seems like well fortunately the weekends have been nice so we get nice weekends and it drops off for monday and then it slowly climbs back up over the week and then it drops again off on monday so we've been in a lot of up and down yo-yoing for probably most of april but still better than we had last year and the water as far as like 
water levels are probably maybe even a little bit lower this year because I know last year we had a lot of rain for, throughout the spring. I don't think we've had as much of that this year as what we have previously. Well, that's for sure, Jeff. But, you know, it seems it seems like an earlier ice out generally helps the fishing throughout the whole rest of the season. So, you know, if you look back in, in notes and history, um, just things that I've written down over the years, it definitely sets up the season to be a good one. So, Brad, I think I don't have anything else to add. I guess, you know, like, like you had said, we just want to thank our customers for supporting us, coming out and still spending money with us. We truly appreciate that. Can't thank everybody enough for the support we got on the podcast over the past couple of weeks, especially last week. Seemed like guys really liked that episode that we did with Laz. I know we had download numbers were great, and, you know, we really appreciate everybody tuning in, listening. Hopefully, Ty, can you can get that same kind of enthusiasm for Ty's episode. So with that being said, Brad, Les, you got something to add, and let's go talk to Ty. Let's go get it done. All right, our guest tonight is Ty Sennett. Ty guides primarily on the Chippewa Flowage. She's been doing that for about 25 years. Ty also has fished the PMTT, which we're going to touch on a little bit tonight. And he also owned a tackle company. So, Ty, first time on the podcast. We want to thank you for coming out. But why don't you give us a little rundown of, you know, history of what got you into musky fishing, kind of like your different levels of achievement or whatever you want to say that's gotten you to where you are today. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for having me first off. So I kind of started out um, just vacationing up here in the Chippewa Flowage, Hayward, Wisconsin area. Um, my parents had come up here before. My mom actually came up since she was a little girl. So she kind of got us started coming up here, my fam- my brothers and, and everything and sisters. And we just fell in love with the lake. My my brothers still come up to the to Wisconsin all the time. We, we grew up down in Illinois. One of the resorts that we always stayed at, he kind of just said, Hey, I got some, some resort clientele that wants to learn the lake. Could you take them out? So I, that's kind of how I got started into the guiding thing. And it kind of branched out from there. I was about 15 at that time. You know, it's it just one of those things where you, I started young and, and it had a, a, a resort that really pushed me and I was lucky to have that resort. And we, I met some great people and it just kind of kept branching out every year. And to the point now where I just have incredible clients, cause you have a, a good client that refers their friend who is also a good person. So I happen to be one, one of the luckier guides and that I've done it long enough to, to have a lot of great, great clients. It seems to be the theme lately with the last two guests that we have on. The last one had a whole bunch of great clients. Doesn't even really need to look for trips and it sounds like you're, you know, kind of in the same ballpark, aren't I? No, my clients are way better than theirs. I can believe it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's a lot of good people out there, especially in the fishing industry. So it, it is a pretty rewarding you know, job that I have. At what point did you finally decide that this was what you were going to do for your career? I mean, when you were younger, let's say 10, 12, and you're going through school, is this what you were thinking you were going to do or is this kind of something that sort of showed up? Honestly, I probably already knew by the time I was in college. Um, I played basketball and ran track in college. I went to a school in Illinois and then, and I actually left Illinois to come up to Wisconsin Stevens Point for my last couple of years of college. Um, and I guided all, all the way through college. And actually my basketball coach was great at Stevens Point. He, he let me miss workouts my uh you know my workouts when I should have been at practice there to come over here and guide so he was great about it um so I I mean I kind of knew what I was that I was going to be guiding you know even through college so college was kind of pointless to me but so Ty you know what resorts do you work with and are they the same resorts you worked with when you originally got out of college um, you know, I, I work with all the resorts uh, for the most part, like Treelands, uh, Deerfoot, Tiger Muskie. Those are some of the, the main ones, but I, the, I'll i pick clients up at any resort. But those three I mentioned are just happen to be some of the busier resorts. So, of course, I'm out of those resorts more. Like the, the resort I originally started with was Daggett's Resort. And I honestly, I hardly guide any out of there, maybe four trips a year. That resort isn't as busy as what it used to be. And that's the reason that I don't guide out of there as much. You know, I still have a great relationship with that resort. But yeah, it's it, it has branched out a lot more to the larger resorts that are on the chip. 
basically because there's more people there. I hear you, Ty. You know, one of the neatest things about that area that you guide in is there's a ton of resorts. There's a ton of bar restaurants on different bodies of water throughout that whole Hayward area. And it, it just makes for a really cool trip. If, if you haven't been in that area, there's a lot of history, a lot of monkey history, and I think it's, it's a cool area to live, that's for sure. Ty's so smart like that, but he's never taken me there. Well, you know, there's also a couple of local establishments that Brad goes to when he's here, and maybe that's why. <laughs> oh, yeah, he can still go. I'll go. I can fish. As long as they're done. You're right, though, Brad. They're, you know, like I go to Lake Vermilion, and I do love Lake Vermilion, but um, it's basically you go out fishing, you come back to your cabin. Um, and so it's not as family friendly. Yeah. I mean, it's fine to bring your family back to your cabin, but it's also nice to give kids an experience of going to a resort and kind of learning to open up to strangers and, and, uh, to new experiences like that. And it, it just is a very warm atmosphere here at the resort. The resort owners here are awesome. They're just good people. Yeah. I think you've got to be good people if you're going to own a resort. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of work. For anyone that thinks you buy a resort and you get to go fishing, it's if you want to keep that resort going, that's really not the case. It's kind of funny that way. You know, you, you take your passion of being at a resort or whatever, you buy one, and what happens next? All you do is work. You don't get the fun part of it. Don't get me wrong. There's some fun with that as well. But it's always mm-hmm. intrigued me, you know, to think – man, you own that resort and all you do is grind it out all day long and maybe you get an hour of fishing in, you know? Yeah. No, I, I think of like the best resort owner is like a Harold Treeland, for instance. The guy just is nice to every single person he talks to. And I know there's a lot of times I've seen it where some of the people he's talking to might have a different opinion than him and he just kind of sucks it up and, and just says, uh, yeah, you might be right. He's just a a good people person. And that's what a lot of the resort owners are like up here. So it's, it's just a great experience going there. Everybody leaves happy. So one of the things that I got to ask, Ty, and I kind of know the answer, I think, but for the most part, your guiding is pretty much only on the chip, correct? Yeah, I'd say almost all of it, yes. You, I'm sure you've explored the other bodies of water in the area. I mean, I, I've fished quite a few of them, actually, over the years. Probably. Yeah, and there's there's a ton of really cool bodies of water. I, I did guide on a lot of the other lakes around here. And the one thing I, I found, the more I guided other lakes, the more my clientele got confused, I should say, in that they didn't know that I was actually designated for one lake. Whereas if I just, just guide on the chip, which I enjoy fishing the most, obviously, everybody kind of knows you for one thing. Um, it, it, a good scenario is like Luke Ronestrand. When you mention his name, you think of Lake Vermilion. Um, you don't you don't think of Luke Ronestrand all around Minnesota. You the first thing you think of, oh yeah, he's the best guy on Lake Vermilion. That's one thing I kind of learned at a young age is not to spread myself out to other lakes because then you actually sp- spread yourself thin. It's hard to explain, but just something I happen to be lucky enough to learn early. How big is the chip tie? Oh, somewhere between sixteen and 18,000 acres, depending on water level and, and, you know, where you're getting your information. Um, so, I mean, it's a fairly good sized body of water. It's very similar to Lake Minnetonka, Minnesota. It's spread out. There's a lot of separate lakes, uh, a lot of little, you know, narrow passages. So it's a beautiful body of water. It's, uh, I want to say it's like 92% undeveloped. There was just a property that came for sale. Oh, I think it was two years ago, maybe three years ago, a guy named Nate DeLong. And he had some pretty good acreage right on the lake, and the DNR bought that. So a lot of times the DNR is actually purchasing more land, which is nice to see. It won't, it won't be developed. Yeah, that, that makes it really nice, obviously. But, you know, one of the neat things that I've noticed about the chip, too, is that you have different colored water. Um, you go to different areas. You can be in that chocolate, you know, poopy brown, if you will to the clear water. So it offers a bunch of different things. Yeah, so is poopy brown a technical term? It is on my end. <laughs> yeah, so 
It is pretty cool in that regard. So the east side has a lot of tributaries coming in, so you get a lot of that darker runoff water. And the west side has a lot of natural springs, so you get a lot clearer water. Like, I would guess, like, on the majority of the west side, you can see down between five and eight feet, where on the east side, you can only see down, on average, probably two to three feet. So it's, I mean, it's very unique in that regard. So if you like clear water, you go fish the west side. If you enjoy fishing more stained water, you just fish the east side. It's all separated by one bridge. So there's one narrow passageway that separates the lake into two equal halves. So Ty, speaking of that bridge, last time I was there, that bog floated there and you couldn't separate between, you couldn't go between the two, you had to relaunch. Is that still an issue right right now? Yeah, right now that bog is sitting there. It moved in last fall, uh, like the first week of October, and it the water was going down at that point. So it got stuck against shore. Now, it could any day now they could blow out because the water's back high again. So one good east wind and it'll be gone. Yeah. But it's kind of a pain in the butt, yes. Yes, because you used to be able to just go underneath the bridge and go from one side to the other side, whereas now I think you have to relaunch because I don't think you can go past it from what I from what I'm gathering. Yeah, there's, you know, you could get through right now, even with it against there, there's a, there's a channel on the, it'd be the south side of the bog. You could probably get through right now, but um, if I launched on the west side, I sure wouldn't go to the east side because one good wind is going to blow it right back against the bridge. So yeah, I, I hopefully it blows out in the next week or two. So Ty, I think one thing that people don't realize is how many big fish there are in the chip. You want to talk a little bit about, you know, the history of how that's changed because I don't think it's always been that way from, I mean, but no. last, I was up last fall and you know, we ran on that, uh, that treelands musky bash. I, I got to be part of that and like how many big fish they caught. I, th- I don't remember what it was for just the couple two days, three days they were fishing. I think it was. You know, with the little group that they had there was like eight or nine over 45 or something like that, which, you know, for a Wisconsin lake, that's, I mean, those are, those are big fish for Wisconsin. Yeah. Our average size is great. When I say great, it's in that 42 inch range, which is a nice fish anywhere. Do we have a lot of fish over 50 inches? Probably not. Um, but we have a really good average size. When I was young, the average size was was probably in that 34 inch range. You could almost just follow it up as the size limits increased. You could see that average size go up. If you caught a 40 inch fish back, you know, 30 years ago, that was a big deal. Um, I remember I caught a 51 and a half incher when I was about 19 or 20 years old and it was in a tournament and I let it go. And the top prize for that tournament was in the, the kept category. Now you'd never even hear about keeping a fish like that, but it was a big deal that I let that fish go. Everybody thought I was insane for letting that fish go because instead of getting getting a 40-horse motor, I got a chainsaw. But you know what? That kind of helped me out in the long run. It kind of said, hey, this guy is actually serious. So, yeah, things have really changed, and, and you just see a lot more of in that 45 to 48-inch range like you were just talking about which is really cool. I'm assuming we can attribute that to catch and release is the stocking efforts. Is there any stocking efforts on the chip? Yeah, there's, I, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a combination of everything. I mean, people have done more catch and release, of course, because the, the uh, size limit has gone up to 50 inches on the chip. It's kind of baby steps in, in that regard. So, you know, we went from 30 to 32 to 34 to 45 to 50. So we, we kind of took incremental steps and in, in, in getting that bumped up. And that helps because there were people harvesting fish. And, and not that I'm against harvesting fish altogether. Like that's not, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion. But you, you want to see your fish reach their ultimate potential overall, as an average anyway. And we just weren't seeing that. But now, now with catch and release um, and the, the size limit, those fish are allowed to reach for the most part. You're going to have some incidental harvest, but for the most part, they're reaching their top end and they are stocking. That's, that's another helpful thing. We've got a guy named Max Walters who has been incredible as far as a fish biologist here in Hayward. He's kind of 
the head of the Chippewa Lodge and, and the decisions that are made. But he also is really good at, at talking to people um, and, you know, getting other people's opinions on things. He's great. Well, having that support can definitely make the difference. That's for sure, Ty. You know, and like Minnesota had a really good biologist in uh, Rod Ramsell. He was one of the biologists that really boosted Minnesota's fishery. And it's the same thing here. Like we needed a guy like Max to come in and it kind of just a young, younger guy that, that was energetic and wanted to see improvements rather than just letting the lake improve itself. He just made sure he improved it, which is great. I think one of the keynotes there is that, you know, one guy can make a big difference. And if you think about yeah. that, you know, we can all make that difference if we work with them and, and discuss those issues with them. So definitely something, you know, you need to be heard. You know, you just got to not be hard-headed and, and always be right. I mean, it's one thing to have an opinion, but like I, I had an opinion this last winter and I went and talked to Max about it and he said, you might be right. He said, we don't know, but you could be right. And I said, I, I know I'm not 100% right, but this is just what I'm seeing out there. And he's like, yeah, could, could you explain to me where you think this is happening in other parts of the lake? So here's a guy that that says, I don't know everything, but you don't know everything. But tell me what you do know, and maybe we can work together. And that's how it should be. I would agree. That, that's really cool to have that relationship. So I'm trying to remember, Ty, how many years ago it was that I was over there and fished with you, but it's been a while. What are some of the other changes that uh, have taken place since I've been there last? Well, the last time you were here, there was a, there was a lot more milfoil. Um, we've kind of had where the, the kind of a culmination of the Lake Association, the, the DNR, um, the um, Homeowners Association kind of got together and said they want to get rid of some of the milfoil. So we don't have as much milfoil as we used to. I personally am not real fond of getting rid of the milfoil. I think milfoil for this lake is probably the best thing for this lake. But, I mean, that's that's something that you'll you'll never get a DNR agent to say. It's, it's something you're taught in fisheries biology classes that you milfoil is the enemy. And there there is some justification to that because it does wipe out native species but it also is a little bit of darwinism in some respect because it provides more than those native species can provide like more oxygen per acre um, and more habitat per acre as you can see from minnetonka for instance the fishery there benefits from milfoil now the homeowners of course do not benefit from milfoil so that there's a there's a balance there that is really hard to reach. I mean, it's a fine line. Would I like to see more milfoil out here? Of course I would. But do the homeowners and resort owners? Not all of them. So you got to take other people's beliefs into your your thoughts also, though. But other than the milfoil portion of it, um, our average size has probably stayed maybe a hair high, maybe the same or a hair higher, I'd say. Uh, if you remember, we had a couple 47 inches in the, in the last time you were here filming and you wouldn't throw any black with green bladed bucktails. So you didn't catch anything. That's the part I really remember. <laughs> remember you were, you, you were going to prove me wrong. It's never about me, Ty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, your buddy Eric did well, at least he had, he had the black and green blade. So. He did. You're right. It's amazing that whole flowed green color, you know, black shirts, flowed green blades, and it does. I mean, there's something about that fishery that uh, those fish love that color. I don't know what it is. If you remember, you said, "Hey, I'm gonna. I want to come over and film with you. Do you want me to bring any baits when I come?" And I said, "Yeah. Could you bring two supermodels, black with green blades, three cowgirls, black with green blades?" and two juniors black with green blades. And you told me, I'm going to prove you wrong, that this is all just a, because you're throwing those. And then Eric was in the middle of the boat and caught all the fish. <laughs> it, it could have been Eric. <laughs> he has a hot rod. Yes, he is a hot rod. 
When when does that start, Ty? I mean, that color combination, I mean, it's been there forever. I mean, you hear about the Chippewa flow, it's the, that's the first thing that comes to my mind every time. Uh, when would you say that that became the color combo? It's not always the color combo. I would say that color works good from, like, August on. Like, early in the season, we don't catch many on the black and green. I and mean, we still catch some, don't get me wrong. But we catch more on a, a bigger variety of colors. But it seems like once that water starts to get warm, those, you know, like in that late August stagnant period, that's when they really start going on that black and green. But as far as like time in years when it started, I can remember back, I'd say when I was about 18, 16, between 16 and 18 years old, I'm 47 years old now. So it, it's been a while. I mean, it, I remember the year that color came out and, and it was just like, wow, this is pretty eye-opening it's kind of like when when people realize that that black nickel was so good you know all some people like whoa this is incredible like on you know that black nickel color that you probably sell a ton of bread there's years where people just went crazy for that yeah it's amazing i mean those those are definitely staple colors let's shift gears here a little bit let's talk about your, your tackle company that you had and kind of where that all went and how it started. And give us a little brief uh, description of what that looked like. Well, um, I had been making baits. Uh, I had a great shop teacher actually in high school that when I was a freshman, I, I took shop class and he taught me how to make baits. And I, I kind of branched out from there and just kept going and going and going on it. And I caught a fair amount of fish on certain baits. The one thing I'll say is you make about 10 baits and maybe one will work probably more like 20 to one. So I kind of have always done it. And then I had one bait in particular that I kind of branched off of a bunch of other baits and, you know, like it was a, a tail bait, which there's been a million tail baits and I, I figured out a way to make it click that was a pacemaker and one of my clients talked me into actually distributing it because he said I was dumb not to basically we ended up doing it and or I ended up ended up doing it and it worked out well I, I had that company Senate tackle company for well, I don't know 13 years maybe and then I sold that company along with the five baits that went with it to drifter tackle oh I think they've had it probably seven years now six, seven years. And it's been a good relationship there with them. They've, they're good friends of mine and I'm not working with them anymore now, but, um, they're, they're great people and they've, they've done a good job with the company. The whole tackle industry is, it's fun. Uh, you always start out as a basement bait builder. I, I shouldn't say you always do, but most people start out as a basement bait builder and you stumble onto one bait that happens to catch a lot of fish. And it, it's, it's just cool to catch fish on your own baits, of course. And then when you see other people using them, it's pretty neat. It's really neat, actually. So it was, it's been a fun little adventure there. Right now, I'm currently not, I shouldn't say not making baits because I've got a bunch of designs I'm still working on. But I'm currently not in the tackle industry right now, I should say. Yeah, I understand that whole that whole concept, Ty. It, it is cool to see people throwing your baits and and hearing about catches that they're getting on them. You know, Carrie actually caught a nice fish this last season on a pacemaker as well. It's still a staple. Definitely one of my favorite topwaters, that's for sure. I got to ask you, though, when you switch from wood to plastic, <laughs> what was the the mentality of your customer? And I have to ask again, um, which one do you prefer to throw, the wood or the plastic? That is such, it's so funny you say that. Like, I hear that all the time at the sports shows. How come you aren't making any more wood? Can I get more wood ones? And it, the whole reason I switched from wood to plastic is because I could not keep up. They're, making them out of wood took about uh, seven to eight minutes. Making them out of plastic took me about two minutes. So basically, I almost tripled my production by going to plastic, and I saved more money by going to plastic. So I could hit a lot more of the market by going to plastic. Now, do I like wood or plastic better? Honestly, I like the plastic better myself. 
the only time I like the wood ones better is if it's flat, 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 calm. I throw plastic. The plastic is, is a lot more um, consistent. It runs more true. So the wood one, you have to reel slow for the most part. And the plastic one, you can burn. So it's, the plastic one is a lot more versatile where the wood one is a, a situational bait. I would agree with that. I, I do think that there's, you know, the plastic seems to resonate sound better, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people just like wood baits and you'll never get them out of that mentality. And it's not a bad mentality. I'm not saying it's wrong, but if you talk to a lot of the old school fishermen, they like wood baits and that's all they like because they, they just do. Uh, I mean, a variety of different reasons, whether they think it's homemade more or, you know, they just think the durability is there or it's hard to say. Yeah, a lot of people will never get out of that mentality that anything less than wood is good to fish with. I mean, your consistency is going to be so much better with plastic. I mean, wood, you know, depending on the grain of the wood, there's so many different variables with wood. And then as paint starts wearing off and it starts getting waterlogged, no, don't get me wrong, there's certain baits that uh, being waterlogged is a good thing. You know, I I agree with you, Ty. I mean, how else do you do this uh, as a business? Yeah, well? Yeah, like with the plastic, there's a tolerance there uh, as far as weight. You know, you can get it right down to the gram, and if it's over two grams off of your your predicted weight, then you just get rid of those, and you, you just say those are those don't work. So we need to keep it exactly at, let's say, seven grams. So you, you just can get things dialed in a lot better. That's two guests in a row, Brad, that have said that they prefer plastic baits over wood baits. It's kind of strange because, like Ty was saying, it seems like it's – the general public prefers the opposite. Everybody just has their preference. You know, I would say Wisconsin people probably like the wooden baits better just because a lot of those Wisconsin fishermen are old school fishermen. And that's kind of what you, you grew up with a Frenchie LeMay bait, or you grew up with a tallywhacker, a wooden tallywhacker. So, you know, or a pose waker, you know, out of wood. So it's, everybody's different. Josh, that's two guys in a row that say they prefer plastic, but they've also both said that there's situational times where they prefer wood. That's, that's yeah. fair, yep. So it's a situational type deal, and and I, I can see that. I can reflect on that just from the, the little bit of fishing that I did last year. There was definitely situational times where the plastic would outperform the wood, my fish came on a wood pacemaker because I prefer the sound of the wood ones over the plastic ones. Uh, the one I have is very seasoned. There's very little paint left. It gets waterlogged, and that's the one I like, you know? Yeah. I will tell you this. If you're looking for a trophy fish, there has been a lot more trophy fish caught on the wood ones than the plastic ones. That being said, my biggest pacemaker fish it was a 52 and a half, and that's on a plastic. I'd say that's a trophy fish. <laughs> so it's hard to say. I mean, the more you throw one, the better you like it. 52 and a half right. qualifies as a trophy over there in Minnesota? I thought they got to be 55 to even count. Right. It, it qualifies as a trophy in my world. Oh, I don't know. I, but you got to remember that my pacemaker fish last year was my first fish casting in, not, in 10 years. So any fish to me these days is a trophy. 10-inch bluegills, 52-inch muskies, same thing. 10-inch, I'm telling you, Jeff, a 10-inch bluegill <laughs> is a trophy. You need to get out more. <laughs> I don't disagree with Carrie there. Thank That's you. a very big bluegill. It is. I agree. I'd go, I go 10 and a half myself because I've only caught too. one of them. I won't even <laughs> I won't even measure them unless they're eleven or twelve. So I don't know. What you guys are talking you, you about take them off. Yeah. Nice try, Jeff. <laughs> you know the, the funny thing is, is it's, it always amazes me. I, I've got some. Uh, well, I've got a ton of friends in Wisconsin, but you know I have a ton of clientele from Wisconsin that come over here and fish muskies with me, and they're like, "Hey, Brad." do you think maybe we could quit early one day and we could go get some of those 10 inch bluegills you talk about? And I'm like, for sure we can go do that. You know, and 
it kind of breaks up the monotony of monkey fishing. And honestly, there's a lot of people that have not caught a nine, 10 inch bluegill, you know, and we're very fortunate in that realm that we have a bunch of bodies of water in our area that, that do produce that type of fish. Plus you're really prepping yourself for those geriatric years coming up. <laughs> That's, All the for sure. That's for sure. I'm getting older. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, there's, there's something about a big bluegill. I mean, pound for pound, think about the fight. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do a lot of ice fishing, so you can always tell a difference between a bluegill and a crappie. No, it's, it's all good stuff. It's just, it, it's amazing to me. I know that you guys have bodies of water over there that produce 10-inch gills as well, but uh, there's just so many different people throughout all of the fishing community that they've just never been there. They've never gotten that big a fish, so mm-hmm. it's a cool thing. I think you guys maybe have more lakes like that than we do. Um, I think it's kind of a, a chemical thing more than anything of it. It'd be a, an ichthyology thing to look at because it's, you guys definitely might have the water quality to produce those that we maybe don't, whether it's some kind of, yeah, I, I don't know, to be honest with you, but um, like, it's hard to explain. Yeah, that's the topic, though, you, you brought it up, that you do a bunch of ice fishing. You also guide ice fishermen, correct? Yeah, and I absolutely love it. I don't understand why I love it so much, but I just love being out there on the ice and catching fish. And again, you're with great people. So you have, have a lot of fun and, and, uh, you're, I have ice shacks. So we're out of the element at wood, wood burning stove. So whenever you get cold and you just go warm up quick and get back out on the ice. But yeah, I, I truly enjoy the electronics part of it. I would say the most, um, with the hand optics, the, the Markham graphs or whatever units of X wires, um, whatever units you're using, I, I enjoy that probably as much as catching the fish. Ty, do you think that, you know, doing the ice fishing thing in the winter or, you know, maybe taking your kids out pan fishing, do you think that helps um, recharge you when it comes to musky fishing? No, but it, it helps, helps keep me in tune with what's going on out there on the lake. You know, like a lot of times in the spring, I'm I'm targeting crappie and bluegill up shallow with either clientele or friends or family, and it tells me right where the muskie's food preference is, um, and walleye for that matter. I I love 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 walleye fishing. Like as much as you talk about catching bluegill bread, I love walleye fishing. So like spring walleye to me is one of my favorite things. So if you don't know where the crappie and bluegill are you don't know where the walleye are that they, they just gobble up crappie as soon as they're done spawning. So it, it, it does help me in that regard to, to find my walleye to be. So if I, if I am out there day to day, it helps me with walleye fishing. So basically multi-species fishing is going to help you be a better fisherman all the way around is what you're saying. Correct? Yeah, I, I'm sure it does. You know, some of them, I like, like Brad, like, like you carry, you don't, you're not one dimensional being a multi species angler helps you be a better musky fisherman. Yeah. I think of like Hammernick, Luke, Ronestrand, you guys like Luke just sent me a picture of a, some big Wally that his kids caught the other day. And you know, he's out fishing all the time. He's just and not just for muskies. I mean, he's, you know, from bass to walleye to, crappie everything which i respect I, I was fortunate enough to have a great father and mother for that matter but uh, my dad would take my two brothers who are a year older than me they're twins they, he would take us three out in a little boat and we would cast for perch for hours and hours and hours i don't know how he did it because i'm sure we were not the best in the boat but he kind of instilled that fishing bug into us and and he wasn't much of a of an angler but he learned through taking us fishing because he saw that we just loved it so yeah and it, it just that bug like you say just keeps keeps growing i'm with you i mean that's how it got started with me as well i mean i you know my dad was i'll just tell you this we used 50 pound dacron with a steel leader 
and a little tiny jig to try to catch bluegills. Did we catch them? Yeah, we got some. But ultimately, you know, he gets back in my boat as I matured and got older, and he's like, are you kidding me? You're using three-pound tests? And I'm like, yeah. And he just couldn't believe it. You know what I mean? He He's matured as an angler, too, as I did. But uh, ultimately, my start to this whole game was a little bit bumpy, if you will. <laughs> yeah, well, I bet he never got bit off by a bluegill, though. Good point. Good point. Uh, <laughs> some of our listeners probably have never seen 50-pound Dacron. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be 50 yards long, but it'll stretch to 80, so that's the best part. <laughs> oh, crazy stuff. I, I remember running some of those original reels. I, my first rod was a steel fishing rod. Think about that. Oh and I God. can't remember. It was an old Garcia reel and open face with 50 pound background. And I remember I started bass fishing, you know, I'm like 12, 13, 14 years old. And I'm like, I'm going to be a bass fisherman. And so casting that, and I'll never forget, I would get a, a backlash that you couldn't imagine. And I would sit there for an hour trying to pick that out. Finally, I'd take it home, start picking it out again. And then pretty soon, well, I guess any new line, but think about that. I mean, no anti-reverse. I mean, it was just ugly. I know. Especially with that. Basically, from that story you just told, you're about 90 years old, right, Brad? <laughs> uh, it sounds like it, doesn't it? It's just amazing that, you know, that's the equipment that it was given to me. You know, I mean, that's where I, my root came from, I guess. Well, I credit you and Carrie for turning around the, the industry as far as reels go. I, I mean... You just never saw these high-end reels that we have now with the uh, power that they have right now until cowgirls came out. And that, well, I thank you for that, for one, but um, it it just really made these, made Abu Garcia, um, Shimano, and everybody put power handles on and, and really turn up their technology to adapt, which is really cool. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I'll never forget this one, Ty. I started playing with the Trinidad, and I was in the boat with Hammernick one night, and I was throwing a pacemaker, actually, and I, I have the TN-16, and every turn of the handle is 48 inches of line, right? So I'm playing with that reel. This is back when we had Calcuttas and, and uh, TEs, but other than that, I mean, there was no other reel that would pick up line like the, the TN-16, and so I'm burning this this pacemaker in, and it's bouncing from wave to wave. It's clearing the clearing the bottom of the waves, you know. And he he looks back at me, and I kind of have my my body position to where he couldn't see the reel. And he's like, "What are you doing?" And I'm like, "I was just going to show him what this reel actually was capable of." And he was laughing so hard. But you know, took <laughs> from that reel to you know the reels that we have now. I mean, talk about incredible. You're exactly right. I mean, there's been a huge change in that part of the industry. Which is good because now, you know, if somebody that maybe isn't as strong or is older and doesn't have, you know, the endurance, now they can fish all day. It just made life a lot easier for a lot of people. I would agree with that 100%. I mean, it's really cool. And then you can look at the rod side of things, you know, and, you know as well as I do, Ty, when you started, I mean, a six-foot rod was pretty long, you know, and then we've seen seven-foot and seven-foot six, and they just continue to grow. And it, It's amazing the different changes that have taken place. Yeah, I remember when Lama Glass came out with their figure-eight special, and that was the longest rod on the market. It was a seven-foot rod, and I was in at uh, back then it was Ubi's or LB's, however you want to say it in downtown Hayward. And I knew John, the owner real well. And I was a high school kid. And he said, uh, why don't you just try this one? It just came out, go try it and tell me what you think. And I brought it back to him and said it was too long, a seven foot rod. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. And now you probably don't pick up anything less than eight. Yeah. I don't even pick up eight usually. Um, like my, the people I take out fishing, uh, they usually use eight, six or nine foot. Personally, I usually use a nine foot for every single lure, even jerk baits and twitch baits. 
it, you know, sometimes you got to turn your rod a little to the side, but your hook sets are better. Your figure eights are better. I know guys are using 10 foot rods, you know, like Luke. I mean, there's, there's a case. Well, there is that and has freakish strength. So he can handle that. You're not quite ready to go to 10 foot yet, Ty? No, I don't need it because I've, I've got a bass boat. So I sit fairly low to the water. Like if, if I was in a larger boat, like, um, you know, like some of these guys are using great lake style boats and, and some of them have to, like guys that are doing St. Clair, some of the Mille Lacs, that kind of stuff. They, they probably sit so much higher than me that they might need 10 foot rods. Not might, they do need 10 foot rods for a good figure eight, but I, I don't need a 10 foot rod. So Ty, I know we want to talk a little bit about tournament fishing and in order to keep this episode at a reasonable length, we should probably start thinking about going down that road a little bit. I think the first thing maybe we should talk about is, you know, I guess maybe like, you know, what you like about fishing tournaments for one. I think there's a lot of guys out there that maybe aren't, they're not into it. They don't understand it. They don't get why people even want to do it. You know, for, for me personally, I liked it. I'm some of my better friends. I, I am, that I'm friends with now. I met by fishing tournaments so the camaraderie part of it was one that i i liked a lot and i actually missed by not fishing them why don't you talk a little bit about that and then maybe we'll talk about you know how you prepare for them because guys can probably relate how you prepare for a tournament versus how you prepare for say maybe a new lake or something so even if you don't fish tournaments you can probably still try to draw some you know some information off of that well I, a lot of guys grew up playing sports myself included and tournaments are just a, a fill-in for those competitive times that I don't have anymore. I mean, the muskie is my ultimate competitor on the water, but you know, you want to go against somebody that's just kind of your competitive nature, I would say. And tournaments let that happen. Now, is it for everybody? No, but, but that's fine. Um, there's some people that just think that they're wrong and that tournaments don't help and everything, but you know, it serves a purpose for people like me that, that really are competitive and for people like you, Jeff, people that grew up, you know, very competitive. And this is an, another way to test yourself against other people. And it's fun. Like, I, I enjoy, like you said, Jeff, the meeting people and talking to people. I've got tons of friends that, that I fish these tournaments with and against. And it, it's just fun to, I'd say half of it is being with those guys. And, you know, yeah, it's competitive when you're on the water. But I also look forward to meeting up with the guys afterwards and having something to eat and just, you know, shooting the crap. I like a lot of the tournament atmosphere as much as I like the actual tournament. The one thing I always kind of liked about tournaments, too, was like I've always said it like tournament results don't lie. OK, so if you meet an angler <laughs> at the boat launch or whatever, you say, hey, how'd you do today? Yeah, you may or may not get the true story. OK, well, tournament results, they don't lie. So you you have a really good judge of like how you did that day versus what the rest of the field did that day and you can compare notes and off of what you did you can actually learn quite a bit from fishing tournaments even if you don't have a lot of success just based off of you know what you hear other people did that day what other patterns were working just kind of opens your mind a little bit and so that was the one thing i liked about tournaments too is that like i said you can it was always just a gauge to see you know like how you how you did that day versus what everybody else did you know, it's, it's actually kind of cool if you look at it like long term, there's, there's about 5% of the people that win 80% of the prize money or prizes. Um, like if you think of Hammernick, Hoyer, Luke Ronestrand, those three in Minnesota have probably taken at least 80% of the prize money. Um, there's one guy, Jason, that fished for million tournaments. He's done real well too. I can't remember his last name offhand. Sorry, just having a name blank. But in Wisconsin, you think of Lejewski for one. Um, Osfer and Rayleigh, those guys fishing together have done real well. Um, like there's there's certain in Wisconsin those those groups that those guys dominate in Minnesota. Those three I mentioned dominate. And if you like culminate everybody else it really shows that those guys are incredible fishermen and it's, it's kind of like you said, like proof in the pudding. It's neat to see who comes out at the end, but it also tells you how good a guides they are because those guys are using applications that they use for clientele every day. 
and putting it into tournaments. And that tells you how much they know the water because they are just dominating tournaments overall. And it, it just shows you, like, if you're going to hire a guide, I'm not going to say you need to hire a guide that fishes tournaments, but if you look at guides that are fishing tournaments overall and fish them a lot, if they're not doing real well, you might go, ah, I don't, I don't know. This guy isn't producing as well as this other guide in tournaments. I mean, it, that sounds terrible to say it that way, but it's to me, it's more impressive than anything to see people time and time again coming out on top. Yeah, the other two guys that I that I think of when I think of really good tournament anglers is uh, Matt Snyder and Chris Reby. Those guys had a run there for a while too. Where I mean, I think they were in like oh. the what they, didn't they win top oh, yeah. team of the year a couple years in a row or something? <clears throat> it was just um, yep. just incredible. Just like you said, it goes it goes to show you. You know, new different bodies of water, different days, different tactics, different states, how consistent those guys are. And like you said, it just shows you what kind of anglers they are. Yeah, I also think of like Jason Summers. You're right. Revy has dominated. Snyder's done very well, too. Um, Jason Summers, who fishes very few tournaments, but always is in the money. You know, guys like that. Greg Thomas has always done great in tournaments. Like, it's just cool to see like the same names all the time. It just tells you how impressive those guys really are. Uh, it's no different than watching Kevin Van Dam show up in the top 10 all the time. It's like, wow, this guy is incredible. I would agree with all of that. Ty. And one, one of the neat things when you, you brought up the name Jason Summers, I remember fishing with him here a few years back. And one of the neat things that he told me, I said, you know, when you're in a tournament, you're kind of locked down into a certain area. I mean, you, you don't want to give up that area if you think that's where you're going to catch. And I said, how do you deal with that? I mean, that, that's one thing that I've fished a few tournaments, mostly in the bass world, actually. But I've fished some muskie tournaments as well, and I've filmed Hammerneck and Beekner. But his approach was like this. He goes, if I'm on an area that's, say, 200 yards long and it's a weed bed, and he said, I'm just sick of pounding that same water for six hours. He said, I'll fire up the big motor. I'll drive and make a big circle and I'll pull right back up to that structure. And he goes, it refreshes your mind. And I go, okay. And he said, yeah, you, you approach that spot way differently pulling back into it. And I thought that was always interesting. I've thought about that from time to time. How long did it take him to tell you that story? Cause you and I both know how he tells stories. <laughs> oh, that's for sure. Uh, you gotta love Jason, but no, he's he's a hundred percent right. Though I mean, when you get on a spot like that where you know you're gonna in your head you're gonna win that tournament, you got to go about that spot differently almost every time. You know, unless you go through a, through the area two times in a row and and something works, you're if that doesn't happen, you go back the, the second time and do it differently. So he's a hundred percent right there. And, and if it, if driving in a circle re, restarts it, yeah, then drive in a circle. Yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I've often thought of that. It's interesting. You know, you basically recheck, I guess, you know, it's like rebooting your computer, if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I do enjoy the, the tournaments. Um, there's, yeah, there's some negative parts of them. Like, you know, you got a spot that you think, the fish are, and it's not your spot. So you can't just hunker down on it for the most part. Although Jason and I power pointed down or power pulled down on a spot one time. That was kind of fun. He had, we had his uh, ranger with the power poles. So, I mean, you just got to kind of give up some spots at times and come back to them, you know, cause it's not your lake for the most part. So you got to get that in your head. So what is your approach, Ty? Say, say that uh, next week you're going to cave run for the PMTT, what's your approach when you get there? How many days do you pre-fish? You know, I know that you've been there, so you've got some some intel, if you will, and maybe you've talked to some of the guys down there, but what's your approach to starting out? Uh, first thing I would look for would be weeds. A lot of the lakes, you already know the structure, and if you don't know the structure of the lake, then I'll look for structure first and then weeds second. Um, and then the next thing I'd look for would be bait fish. So you're going to look for something that's going to um, structurally hold the fish first and then look for bait fish second. And structurally holding the fish would be your actual break lines, your your flats, your humps, 
And the other part of the structurally holding fish would be your weeds. So you got all that combination. And then secondary would be your bait fish. And then third would be water temperatures. And this is more important in the spring on cave run than it is on uh, like a summer pattern. But it, honestly, it, it is important in the summer too. But uh, like it, there's a tournament in June over on Eagle River chain. The water temp, I would say, isn't as important at that time because you're kind of in that in-between. You're not in the hot period. You're not in the spring cold period. So water temps there don't matter as much. Then bait fish and weed lines matter more. Let's talk about how you approach that and how you're actually identifying what you're talking about. Because, you know, one of the things that has always been a topic on this podcast, as long as we've been doing it, is side imaging. And I know that you use that as a tool and, and are very good with it. And then I'd like to shift into, you know, your Canadian fishing just for a brief minute, because it kind of ties into what we're talking about right now. Yeah. So a lot of times with my pre-fishing, I don't even make a cast. I just drive. Um, and if you're going in that three to four mile an hour range and get your, your chart speed up to about six, you can actually see those muskies on the weed lines. And the more time you put into side imaging, the more you realize what you're looking at. And the only way you actually can tell what you're looking at is when you actually catch the fish. So let's say I see a fish on my side imaging and I make a cast to it. It follows okay, I recognize what that fish looks like on side imaging now. Um, I can tell you this. There was somebody that that was teaching the, the hummingbird usage that, that I met out on the water a few years ago. And I looked. he showed me an image while we were out there on the water. And he's like, look at all these fish by the bridge, but kind of by the bridge where the bog is. And he goes, look, look at all those walleye. I'm like, no, those are carp. It, it's so hard to interpret Interpret what you are seeing on there until you physically catch it, catch it, or have them follow. So the, the side imaging technology is incredibly awesome, but you got to kind of put a lot of hours in and a lot of catches in to realize what you're actually seeing. And it, it's tough because there's a lot of sensitivity adjustments, um, um, uh, just so many adjustments you can make on both the Lowrance and the Hummingbird and the Garmin units to help you out. And the only re way to really figure that out is time on the water. You know, until you put in hours, like, like Luke and I got in a discussion about it over the winter, and, you know, and he's putting tons of tons of hours on. So he, he is really good at that side imaging. Whereas somebody that just gets a unit is not going to be quite as good right out of the gate. More time you put into those units, the more you'll get out of them. I think you need to be efficient with your, your electronics, you know, that's, that's part of the key to success. One of the things that I've heard, you know, we stay at Tamarack up there in, in Lake of the Woods, and I know you're there the week before I am, Ty. I've heard from a bunch of different people, and I've talked to you about this. I think it's interesting. You'll just drive by a bay, and you'll say, ah, there's only one fish there. You go to the next bay, well, then maybe there's none. Maybe the next one's got three. And, and you use that as a tool in that aspect as well. So you're not burning time fishing stuff that, that isn't going to produce a fish. Yeah, that's something I, I learned maybe four years ago. You can just, in the pure sand bays, that side imaging reads better. If you're in a rocky bay, it's not even close. You, can't, you cannot distinguish fish in the rocks as not, not even close to as good. So if you have a pure sand bay or shoreline, you can just cruise for for miles and just go, hey, there's a fish. And what you should do is instantly cast for it. Because those a lot of those fish are moving, I found, at a speed of like a fast walk or a slow jog. And if you don't get a cast to them instantly, you're not going to get those fish. Now, there's exceptions to that rule. If you have a shoreline where you're on your side imaging, you're going and going and going for a mile, and then all of a sudden you see a weed bed and there's a fish, you can take your time on that fish and, and assume that that fish is relating to that one weed bed. But if you have a bare shoreline and you find a fish, you better get a cast to it like within seconds. And that's what we do out on the chip too. We probably caught half of our fish last year were side imaging fish, including our biggest, or actually including our two biggest. 
So, for instance, our, our biggest fish last year, which was just a, a, a beast of a fish, it was, it was a really nice fish, we had gone past that fish. And I had suckers out, and the guy, the two people I had out had already made cast to that spot. And I said, holy cow, there's a big fish there. You could just see it on side imaging. I said, hold on, guys. And I turned my boat and backed up to the fish and put my motor right on top of the fish and, and therefore put the suckers right on top of the fish and wham, it hit and we caught it. So there's, and I couldn't tell you how many instances where we had, where I was going down a shoreline and all of a sudden off the backside of the boat, the non-weed side, the deep water side, I saw a fish swim by and I said, hurry, get a cast over here. And we would reel in as fast as we can and get a cast and bam, catch that fish. Does it happen every time? No. I mean, they're fish. You have to catch them, at, hit them at the right time when they're aggressive. But it it has totally, totally, totally changed my fishing. I think it's changed a lot of people's fishing. And it's definitely a tool that uh, should be looked at. That's for sure. You know, the, the backside of that is, is that we have a lot of people asking, do you absolutely have to have side imaging to musky fish? No, you don't. It's definitely a tool, and I think one of the things that you need to consider is every tool you can put in your toolbox is only going to help you on the water. Right. Uh, you're 100% correct there. Like, in, in all honesty, so the other 50% of the fish, we didn't even need the side imaging, if you really think of it that way. You know, so had we not had side imaging, we still would have caught 50% of those fish. Yeah, that's well said, Ty. I mean, that that's the answer right there, right? Yeah. It, it, again, just like you said, too, though, it's a good tool to have in your tool shed. I mean, it's like a hook sharpener. You wouldn't want to go out without a hook sharpener. So, I mean, every little bit that helps you out is great, especially with, with muskies because you don't have a lot of opportunities. All right, so Ty, one thing we talked about on a lot of episodes is patterning, and we haven't talked about it in recent episodes that much. You know, like when you cut bait on a pattern, so we can kind of relate that to your average weekend warrior angler, but we can also relate that to to somebody that's fishing tournaments. Let's just say, you know, pre-fishing, you were catching them on double show girls or whatever. Maybe you were trolling and you were catching them on, I don't know, tough shads. How, let's just say you fished the first day of the tournament, or the first five hours of the tournament and you either didn't catch anything, you didn't see anything. How quickly are you looking to change the pattern based off of what you had already previously established based on your pre-fishing? Uh, patterns are kind of tricky. Um, it kind of depends on, so if I'm tournament fishing compared to guiding is a hundred percent different. When, when you're tournament fishing, the patterns might be something that you would not even think of doing when you're actually guiding. For instance, like, I'll talk about guiding first. If I'm guiding, and Greg Thomas is, is probably one of the best at this, you adapt to your clientele. Like if I have, an, for instance, 80-year-old person who is not the best caster, uh, I'm not going to give him a bulldog. You're, you're going to give him a bait that you think would be his best chance at catching a fish. So I would give him a straight reel and crankbait, one, one that casts real easy, um, and you could just reel it in straight like a crane bait or something similar to that regard, a big game bait that you could just straight reel or a, or a topwater for that matter. It might not be what you necessarily think the fish will bite, but it would be his best odds of catching a fish. So that's one thing to think about. In tournaments, it's 100% different. I throw baits that are aggressive. I rip bulldogs. I throw showgirls and burn them fast. Um, I, I throw vexers and rip them hard, you know, stuff that you're going to get reaction strikes so that if, if the fish is there, he'll eat it, even if he's not in the mood to eat it. Uh, and, and that's what most of the, the guys that have done very well in tournaments are aggressive fishermen. Uh, Kevin Van Dam for one, it, Kevin Van Dam is the best all time tournament fisherman ever. Pretty hard to dispute that. And he is probably the most aggressive bass fisherman you've ever seen as far as tournament fishing so I, aggressiveness in tournaments is is what puts fish on the board um and thinking about your client is what puts fish in the boat for guiding so your average weekend warrior should they f- 
follow your aggressive tournament approach or should they just worry about what baits they're going to throw that's going to help them keep them on the water fresher longer? Well, that's kind of a good, good question because if there's two people, then switch it up, have one, one be more aggressive than the other. And every lake has its kind of proven baits, like the Chippewa Flowage is known for either topwater or black with green blade bucktail. So, you know, have one guy just throw the standard baits. And if you have another guy with, then mix it up and have him throw something that's going to get down a little deeper and be a little more aggressive um, or vice versa. What If the guy that's throwing a bucktail, then the other guy can throw a topwater. So I tend to mix it up, have, have guys mix it up or, or suggest that they mix it up more. But I also will say use the baits you have confidence in and every lake you have confidence in a different bait. And what I use on the chip off flowage, I wouldn't use on Malax, for instance, or Vermilion for that matter. So yeah, I mean, there's, I guess that kind of sums it up. All right. So Ty, one of the, one of the questions we had asked, I, we haven't, I don't know if we've done this in recent podcasts either. I can't remember. Things are starting to get a little bit blurry that way, but we typically are looking for like a tip, something that, you know, you, you can offer the listeners that are going to help them put more fish in the boat this coming season. If they've been on the water already, that's great. Maybe it'll help them out, you know, later on this spring or summer, but, uh, you got something you can offer the listeners up. Yeah, I guess probably the the thing I, I would say I tell the people the most is don't look for structure that you can visually see, look for structure that is under the water that you find on your graphs, whether it be side imaging or just standard graphs. But what I'm saying is I see people fishing too close to structure because they have to see the structure. I'd say 90% of the people I take out fishing are fishing way too close to the structure when in fact they should be out away from the structure casting to it. And that, that's something I've seen my whole life and it, it still happens. So it, and there's times when those fish are in, up in the weeds, but most of the time they're going to be running outside edges. Well, I certainly would agree with that. I think sometimes I'm even guilty of it. You know, it goes back to something <laughs> we've talked about before multiple times on the podcast, boat control. You know, if you're if you're driving too close to the structure, you're definitely missing opportunities also. So, Ty, we want to thank yep. you for, you know, for coming out this week. We really appreciate you know, taking your time out of your schedule to talk to us. If people are looking to get in touch with you, what's the best way to go about doing that? Uh, the best way is just to call me at home at 715- Four six two nine four zero three, or my cell phone at six one two eight three nine one two two seven. Otherwise, just go on my website, which is tysenate.com, and all the information is there. I said, do you actually answer your phone? Uh, not when you call. Okay, that that clears it up. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> We really appreciate you, Ty. Um, thanks for coming and sharing today. That's for sure. I, it was fun. No, no problem. Thanks for having me, you guys. And if you want, guys want to get over here and get out fishing, give me a call. Thanks, Ty. Good, I'll do that. Good luck this season. All right. Uh, thanks again for coming out. All right. Thank you. <laughs>